This morning we do look to uh, Genesis 4. We look to Genesis 4 and we'll be looking at the first 12 verses and we'll launch right into it. Uh, I want to say that here it is clear that what we are looking at is directly tied to what has transpired before chapter 4 of Genesis. And what has transpired is Genesis chapter 3 whereby you have the fall, the fall of man. And in that particular passage, you have the serpent, the physical serpent, uh, inhabited by the spiritual serpent, tempting Adam and Eve. First, he tempts Eve, and then Eve tempts her husband, and then the earth is plunged into sin and death. And so what you have in Genesis chapter 4 is you have the direct and residual effect of sin as it relates to the fall. And you have not only sin, but you have sin's uh, desire to serve as a master over mankind. Uh, But you have also within that context of promise, which weaves itself all the way throughout the Bible, uh, almost like a red thread throughout every single passage and book of recorded scripture. And I want to read it to you because it is that important. It is what the Lord God says to the serpent beginning in Genesis chapter 314 that sets the stage for then what takes place all the way throughout the book. Genesis chapter 3 verse 14 reads, And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, this being the act of tempting Eve and calling, uh, causing her uh, to sin, but also it's not through her sin that uh, that sin is charged to us and charged to the earth. It is through Adam. So she went to Adam and deceived him. Uh, But the serpent was certainly a cause of this. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so you see that this is what is taking place. Uh, Also, I want to read because this is going to be very key to the passage. Verse 16 of Genesis chapter three to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain. You will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so uh, as we look to Genesis chapter four, it is clear that you still see in Adam and Eve faith. You see that Adam and Eve have faith and they have faith because they do obey the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You look at verse one of chapter four of Genesis. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And so you see, even in their faith, there is a restoration from God because by faith, they act in such a way so as to procreate and bring about the line that the Lord promised in Genesis 3.15. But also look at what Eve says in the second part of verse one. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. So Eve attributes this ability to bear children, even though it was in pain, her pain multiplied in childbirth. 
She believed that it was the hand of God that orchestrated the birth of Cain. And so she acknowledges that. So we see in them faith. We don't see severance from God in the eternal sense. We see that they have faith in God, uh, that God has followed through on his promise. And we see that it is faith in God's original covenant mandate, uh, the creation mandate to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. So that is first. They are recognized for their faith. So that is how the passage begins. But the passage is not ultimately about them as a whole. In fact, it says then uh, uh, it says after she has a child again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. She gave birth to his brother Abel. And it says Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Very important details. One thing you'll notice about Genesis and you'll notice about other books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is you are provided with very precise details that have everything to do with what's written. There's nothing insignificant about what is said and what is written. But as I said, the first thing we start with is Eve is she's faithful. She has faith. She first recognizes the faithfulness of God to help them bear sons. It is only through him. And part of this is the recognition from Adam and Eve, I believe, even in having children, the simple act of being together and, uh, and procreating. They were undeserving of that mercy. They were undeserving of having life itself after they committed sin against God. So they were in and of themselves unworthy of life, unworthy of life. So for God to continue their line was the first demonstration to them that he was going to be merciful and faithful in bringing about the promise of Genesis 3:15. So in verse 1, she gives birth to the farmer. We could see his trade, his function, uh, part of who he is, Cain, he is a farmer. And then in verses 2 to 3, she gives birth to his brother Abel, the shepherd. He's a shepherd. And so there we move forward to what is then a brewing conflict. There's a conflict. And this conflict is surrounded by what should have been an act of worship. So we move on from who they are. We move on from the birth and some time does elapse. And if you look at verse three, it says, so it came about in the course of time. So there's some time that has elapsed. That Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And then in verse four, it says Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. And then we'll get to the reaction. But it's very clear and it's very simply put. Cain brings an offering to the Lord and this responsibility is first shown to them by the Lord. It's shown to them by the Lord and it's shown after Adam and Eve are in sin and rebellion against him. If you remember, what was it that God provides as an able and ready sacrifice to clothe them? It is animal skins. So God demonstrates he's not obscure as to what sacrifice he requires. He's not 
unsure as to what sacrifice they ought to provide for him, neither are those who are to provide the sacrifice unsure. So Cain brings this offering to the Lord. And this responsibility through animal sacrifice became a necessity after Adam's sin. It became a necessity to provide animal sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there will be no remission of of sins. So Cain brings his offering first. He brings his offering first before the Lord from the fruit of the ground. And the offering is an extension of the person in this regard, that the motive of the one who is bringing the offering must match the motive of the offering itself. So it must match the nature of the offering. And so you have that recognized as Cain brings his offering before the Lord from the fruit of the ground. He brings it. So he is obviously adept and very skilled at being a tiller of the ground, a farmer, a farmer, one who knows how to cultivate the land. And so he brings this offering. And then in verse four, Abel also brought an offering to the Lord. And yet this offering is distinct from Cain's in a few ways. First, Abel's offering was from the firstlings of the flock and their fat portions. And so you have already in your mind as you're thinking about, well, what is the problem? Because both people bring an offering. Shouldn't God have accepted both offerings? But the issue is not simply the offering, because you'll notice the word choice, whether you look at it in the original language in the Hebrew or you look at it in the English in your Bible. I believe it comes across with great emphasis. The distinction is that not only did the Lord search their offering, he searched them. So as they present their offering, he's looking at them. Not only what they bring to him, but what they themselves bring in themselves before him. Because it is worded very carefully and very precisely. It says in verse four at the very end, and the Lord had regard for Abel. And for his offering, he had regard for Abel and for his offering. And so the Lord searches not only the offering, it's not good enough to simply put the offering before him, but he searched them. And I believe that this points all the way through forward through the Old Testament, all the way out to the New Testament and the time in between the old and the new When sacrifices are being given and the hearts are not tied to an act of worship toward God, the people are simply just offering sacrifices. They're offering they're killing animals, they're offering sacrifices, and they believe that that's good enough. But the motives of their hearts are not inclined to worship the God before whom they're bringing their offering. And so, whereas in verse five, it says the Lord If you look at the comparison, but for Cain, for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. I believe we are looking at a very early from a biblical perspective, a very early view of what it means to live in such a way where you are justified by faith, where you are. By faith, 
giving an offering to God, bringing yourself before him in holiness and being either commended because of his work of faith in you or being rejected because you are simply performing an act that is distinct from faith in him. You see that very on, very early on. And so he is rejected. He received one and he reject he rejected the other. Now, you may be asking, you may not be asking, but it does provoke a question. Why? 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 Why would the Lord look at Abel and his offering and then look at Cain and his offering, reject Cain's, but accept Abel's? Why? Well, because he is the Lord. Because he is the Lord and he can do as he pleases. He is the Lord and he can do as he pleases. And I believe that that's why we're not given this drawn out discourse as to why we're not told this is why we're already told that man has fallen. So now man is ultimately surrendered completely to whatever terms that God desires for man. So man is not standing in position to say, well, I mean, I, I did what I did, Lord. I, I, you know, I gave you my offering from the first fruits of the ground. You should accept them. Well, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable because God said it's not acceptable. But I believe that there are some clues as we look at God's divine prerogative. There's some clues because, as I mentioned, the offering that God expects to give on Adam and Eve's behalf is of uh, the animals. And it is because they have blood in their body. And this offering was not simply a peace offering. It doesn't indicate in the text that they were commanded to give a peace offering to God. It was a sacrificial sin offering that they were to give. So giving from the cursed ground was not good enough. Giving from the cursed ground was not good enough. And I tell you that because God speaks to Cain as if it's something he should already know. He speaks to Cain as if it's something he should already know. So I believe that Cain is certainly as... He is schooled in how he ought to relate to God. He is either implicitly understanding that or by perhaps speaking with Adam and Eve. He knows that there is a certain way that he ought to walk with God. And his brother does. Well, how do you know that? Where are you getting that from? Well, look at what Abel does. Abel actually does what's acceptable. And so it's not just that God is somehow playing some kind of game with these two. It's that God has an expectation of what he desires for them to bring before him. And it's really themselves. It's really themselves. But you'll see the evidence of what I'm saying as we move forward through the text. He has no regard for Cain and his offering. He receives one. He rejects the other. And eventually what that is teaching us is what we have been studying in Romans. He's the Lord. He can choose as he pleases. And he made his choice. He's the Lord. He can choose as he pleases. And he made his choice. And he stands outside of any accusation that he should have done something differently because both are fallen before him. And he could have rejected both. But he he, he embraces Abel and his offering, whereby he rejects Cain. Well, you'll see why. You'll see why momentarily. I believe that you see a distinction between the two men. You see a distinction between the two brothers. You see a distinction between Cain and Abel. In verse 6, it is not at first that Cain responds with words toward God after he is told what he is told. Look at this. You'll see in his reaction. 
You'll see why he's rejected. I believe that's what the text is saying. You'll see why Cain is rejected. So look at this in verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So look at this. Look at Cain's response. The response always tells you where someone is before God. So Cain became very angry. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. That would mean his facial expression bore uh, what was happening with him internally. So as he became angry, and that happens with us. If we're happy, our face typically shows it unless you have what people say is a poker face. And if you're angry, then your face will show. And I, I, come, I come from when I was growing up, the old folks used to say, fix your face. Because your face would tell on you and your face would express what is happening inside of you. And I think about that when I look at this passage, that the face gives away. You know, it's not only that he becomes angry before the Lord. His face is telling on him that he's enraged and incensed. But he's not enraged for the right reason. Because there's never a right reason to be enraged with the Lord. So his countenance fell. So the Lord asked him. Now, I'll tell you. In every single account in the Old Testament, in every single account in Scripture, when God asks a question, he knows the answer. When God asks a question, he already knows the answer. Well, then why is he asking? Well, he's asking because he wants the confession. He wants the confession because the confession tells him that you have a repentant heart. The lack of confession tells him that you have a rebellious heart. And so the Lord asked him a question and you'll see that Cain doesn't immediately answer the question, but he's asked the question. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? And then look at verse seven. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? So why are you letting this descend from irreverence into anger? Because Jesus tells us anger then is not only a form of murder, you are a prime candidate to commit murder. So that's what we see. Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Makes you wonder, even in Ephesians, as the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Or the idea is do not let the sun set on your anger. Do not let the day close and you are so incensed and enraged because so many sins will be traveled and eventually committed openly and expressively should anger fester. And so you see it here. He tells them what to do. God is not obscure in this passage. He's very clear. Well, what am I supposed to do, Lord? I'm angry. You haven't accepted my offering. Well, here's what you do. If you do well, Do the thing you're supposed to do. Now, that inclines me to believe that Cain knew what he ought to have done. He didn't do it. And yet he's saying, do well. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? It's the idea of doing what you're supposed to do. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. You must master it. And so you have this rejection, but first you have instruction. Cain doesn't respond at first to the instruction. But we do have a clue as to why 
his his uh, offering is rejected and why he's rejected. The clue is in what is said in this verse that we just read and also in the actions that will follow. It is indeed a matter of the heart. Everything we offer to God is not good enough to simply offer it. It must come from the heart. It must come from a heart of wanting to please him and to desire uh, to have his name honored. It's not good enough to simply do. And you'll always hear me say it. God is very much concerned with motive. He's very much concerned with not only that we do, it's why do we do what we do. So the responses, they tell us they tell us very much about where Cain is. And that is what also tells God what he must say to him. I mean, God knows his heart because he searches the heart. But it's not okay with God to simply uh, to simply allow us to do something. But the heart must be motivated by worship, reverence, consecration, holiness. And this is not so in Cain. Well, how do we know? How do we know that's not so in Cain? Well, we just saw it. He became very angry and he showed it in his face. He became very angry and he showed it in his face. So the Lord approached him directly and swiftly. So the Lord seeks to deal with him before this degenerates into a sin that uh, would result in the taking of a life because anger and murder are so closely related. The Lord was not trying, as I said, to gain information he did not have at first. Instead, he was trying to solicit this confession. He wants repentance and he wants it at the point where Cain didn't do what he ought to have done. And he's angry. Lift up your countenance. Lift up your countenance. And essentially what he tells him in verse seven, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? You simply have to do what is right. If you do what is right, all of this changes. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The warning here was you must master sin or it will overtake you and devour you. You must master sin or it will overtake you and devour you. So the Lord warned that this festering anger that was boiling inside of Cain and showing on his face would overtake him if he did not actively fight against it. And because of the fall, the Lord is also warning him in very recent events and the recent turn that humanity itself has taken. He's warning him. He's warning him here. But he's also warning him about the judgment that will soon follow from the vantage point of what God knows concerning wiping out all of sinful humanity in the flood. And so this is a very pivotal point for Cain, and he's warned directly from the Lord. The Lord is still speaking directly to them in this generation of people. And he's telling him if he does not actively fight against this because sin is so dangerously present, it's not only going to encroach on Cain's territory, but it is going to be his motivation. It's going to possess him and it is going to cause him to act. So uh, we're met with this warning. What does Cain do? He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Because what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to do well. And in doing well, you and I could step back and say, well, what is it that Cain should then do differently? 
Well, what he should do is he should offer a sacrifice similar to the one that his brother offered. And in offering that sacrifice, present it before God with a heart of repentance for his anger and be acceptable in the eyes of God because of his faith, because of his obedience, and then be restored to both God and to his brother. Because I'll tell you, the first thing that Cain did was he put himself in comparison with his brother. So after his disobedience, he looks to his brother and he becomes angry with his brother. And in becoming angry with his brother, he then puts himself in a position where now his brother's a threat. This is a very important principle. Because you even see it today as the world becomes much colder, much more wicked. And you see that where holiness exists in a family, you see unholiness rise up against it. It, it perpetuates itself in nations, in family relationships, in family groups. You see it. But you also see in this situation that Cain is very clear as to what he's supposed to do. But he does differently. He does. He takes a tragic course. He told Abel, his brother. Now, there's some interpretive things that go with this particular verse. Some take this to mean that he told his brother to come out to the field. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that grammatically he tells his brother about the interaction he had with the Lord. So I believe he tells his brother, this is this is what just happened to me as I spoke with the Lord. And here's my reaction. And he tells Abel what his interaction with God was. There's translations of the Bible that go both ways. I believe the NASB stops it where it needs to stop. But I don't believe he tells his brother, hey, let's go out to the field. And then there's some there's some uh, uh, there's some spontaneous action of murder that's not premeditated. No, I believe he tells his brother what happened and he's not happy with what his brother does in response. And what might that be, you ask? His brother doesn't side with him. Because his brother's offering was acceptable in the eyes of God and his brother was acceptable in the eyes of God. So I believe that Cain is recognizing that Cain stands outside of being acceptable before God, bearing in himself uh, being one who is an enemy of God. And I believe that that is the very real case in nowhere so far do we see any faith inside of Cain. We don't see faith. We don't see obedience. And there may be some who want to import that into him, but I don't see anything here that would tell me we're dealing with someone who's in the line of the seed of the woman. In fact, it's the opposite. We're seeing the first murder of the unrighteous raising and raising his hand and striking down against uh, the righteous. We see that. And we see it between the brothers. So it's a pivotal time and he doesn't do what he ought to do. He doesn't do what he ought to do. So he told Abel, his brother, and then it came about when they were in the field. After they have this discussion, it comes about that when they're in the field, that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. This attack 
This murder is unprovoked. It's unjust. And it is a strike against God. Well, how do I know that? Who was he angry with? He was angry with God. And in being angry with God, he is certain to carry out his murder against those who bear God's image in them. More specifically, he's going to carry out his anger against one who is acceptable before the eyes of God. Well, why are people so angry toward me and I'm just walking with the Lord? Why do they hate me? Well, because you are acceptable before the God who will judge them. It's why we see what we see. You are acceptable before God and they know that they're not. So there's only two ways around this. Either work my way into that and that's impossible or I have to start striking against everything and everyone who are acceptable to God. And you see that play out all the way through the Bible, all the way through. But you see it here first. And so he rose up against his against Abel, his brother, and he killed him and he killed him. Absolutely tragic. He has this discussion with him and then he's not satisfied with what the Lord says. He's obviously not satisfied with anything that took place in speaking with his brother. So it's not just, well, Cain needed to talk to somebody. No, Cain needed to be obedient. He needed to do what God told him to do. He didn't need to have conversation. He didn't need to be laid up on someone's couch having a conversation about his feelings. He needed to do what was right in the eyes of God by faith, repent of his actions of anger. And then be made right before God by presenting an acceptable sacrifice. But because he didn't do that, now he took the other course. I'm going to take this in my own hands. His solution, he thought, is the best. I'm going to wipe Abel out. And you see that. Well, the Lord forewarned him of this great danger. And so after this happens in verse 9, the Lord sought to question him again. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? You just see the sins piling up because look at what Cain says. I do not know. I do not know. You killed him. What do you mean you do not know? So now you see he's speaking the language of his father, Satan. I do not know. And then we're met with a bit of a challenge a challenge to what is actually the case. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Love your neighbor as yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord, he sees enough. He knew the answer. He's not getting the confession. So the Lord goes to the judgment. Verse 10, he says, what have you done? Another question, soliciting a confession, one that he does not get. Well, you see, anger, anger is something that conceives of murder. But you see, Cain took the question as an affront. But look at this. It was an affront to him because he, he was angry with God. He hated God. So the act he committed was against God. 
And he thought it was possible to deceive the Lord and causing the Lord to believe that Abel was absent from them, but still walking upon the earth. It's very deceitful in the way he answers the question. It's very deceitful. If you look at this, I do not know. I don't know where he is, which means to say he's still alive, but I'm not a gatekeeper for him. I'm not responsible for him. He's responsible for himself. All lies. He's trying to deceive the Lord. I believe one mark of hatred and anger toward God is you lose the ability to understand that God is omnipresent. You lose the ability to understand that God is everywhere and he sees everything. That is one mark of rebellion against God because one begins to live a life that assumes that God doesn't see all things. And it's not that somehow your actions are not seen or noticed by God, even in the recesses of whatever it is people do. But what it is, is that, no, God sees all things. You're just no longer concerned that he sees all things. That is the first mark of complete anger and rebellion towards him. And so you see that in Cain. He takes the question as an affront, as if as if God is not asking him for the reason that he should ask. And as if. The answer that God is seeking is different than the one that Abel, uh, I'm sorry, that Cain should give. But Cain spoke as though, listen to this, Cain spoke as though Abel's absence was through Abel's own hand. That's very deceitful. Well, he's not here because you killed him. He's not here because you killed him. Anger conceives of murder. I believe this is exactly what the Lord had in mind when he said it. And he saw the festering anger in the religious leaders and in the people and in the the, the Pharisees, the rulers of this world. He saw their anger and he saw their murder and he said it to them. Your murder is like your father saying. We haven't killed anyone, Lord. No, I see it coming. That's where it leads. But listen, lying is not far behind murder as well. Because you either have to lie to commit murder, you have to lie to cover it up. And so it's all weaving together in this satanic, serpent-like thing whereby Cain is trying to, maybe even unbeknownst to him, extinguish the seed of the woman. Because I believe this passage is very much tied to those recent events. He says, I do not know. I do not know. So what the Lord does is the Lord who sees all things and knows all things, he immediately goes right to it. He goes right to it. He says, what have you done? He doesn't say, oh, okay, I have a few more questions. No, what have you done? In other words, I I know what you've done. If Cain would not cry out for his brother, then all the curses because Abel's blood would cry out from the ground would fall upon Cain. And listen, we see something of the sin nature. We we see something of the sin nature. There's a similarity between Cain and Adam uh, in this way. Like his father, Adam, he failed to own up to his part in the destructive sin. Because remember, Adam said, no, the woman you gave me. She deceived me and I ate. Am I Eve's keeper? And so you hear the same sinful response That causes tremendous destruction. 
And then you see that Cain is then cursed with personal judgment. The Lord gets right to it. What have you done? The voice, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I want to tell you something about omniscience, God knowing all things and God being omnipresent everywhere all at once. The blood of his saints cries out to him, the blood of his saints. And furthermore, you don't need to die and be implanted in the ground by persecutors for there to be a crying out before God. Tormentors tormenting those who belong to the Lord cries out to him. It all cries out to him and he responds. That's why he knows who to vindicate and, and, and he knows when to vindicate them. But you see this judgment is personal. You see, it's a personal judgment. He would be cursed from the ground. He would be cursed from the ground. The Lord takes away everything that Cain was made to do. He takes it away from him. says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground. Do you find it somewhat fascinating that the same way in which the physical serpent is cursed and the spiritual serpent is cursed is the same way that Cain is cursed? You're cursed from the ground. Here is how... We will orient you to the ground. You're cursed from it. But when you see even in Adam, when you see that Adam is in this way, he's told that the ground is going to not yield to him what it should. It's the same thing with Cain. The difference is Adam demonstrates faith. Adam's repentant. But not Cain. You don't see it in Cain. So he says to him in verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Well, then the question is, when was Cain first guilty of murder? It was when he became angry. It was when he became angry. When he became angry with the Lord, it was when he was guilty of murder. And it is why the Lord warned him. You're going to commit the act, and thereby committing the act, it will result in the curse. He was guilty. He was guilty. So he would be cursed from the ground. The one thing, tilling the ground, which was meant to work for him, as it says in the passage, in verse 2. He was a tiller of the ground. It would now work against him. The land would be his enemy since he sowed murder in the land, not sustenance and food. He didn't provide anything for others. He took away to serve himself. He didn't even provide for himself sustenance, food, what he needed to sustain himself, economy. No, he sold murder. He sold blood into the ground. So the penalty would be immediate and personal. He says, now, now you are cursed. Now you are cursed. This gives a picture of God of who he really is. Now you are cursed from the ground. And then he's more specific. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain would not be absolved or relieved from working. So the Lord didn't say you don't have to work anymore because you murdered somebody. Now you're cursed. Just figure it out. That's not what happened. Instead, he would work and his his labors would be fruitless. His labor. So he would still till the ground and the ground would not produce anything for him. And he would have to go from region to region to region to try to figure out how to sustain himself. And it would never work out for him because he sowed blood in the land. Listen, for everyone post fall, the land brings thorns and thistles. But for Cain, it would personally do so with further difficulty because he was personally responsible for murder. I want to say this curse was not regional. It wasn't regional. It wasn't like Cain could cross over from one place to the next and then, okay, I've reached the land that will be fruitful for me. No. He was also cursed with, listen to this, restlessness. That's what vagrancy is. You're moving from one place to the next. You can never settle down. You're just a drifter. You're going from one place to the next. You don't have a place to call home. So he would be a vagrant and wander. It's not regional because it says where it says on the earth. So everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, that would be the case for him. You realize we have to get 13 verses into the chapter before the Lord actually speaks. I'm sorry, before Cain actually speaks to the Lord. We get 13 verses in. To this chapter before Cain speaks to the Lord. And it's the only time we see him cry out. But listen. He doesn't cry. And it doesn't appear that he's crying out because of his sin. It's not why he's crying out. Rather he does not agree with the severity of punishment for his sins. That's his cry. That's his plea. Because look at what he says. He doesn't say my sin is too great. My sin is too heavy. He says my punishment is too great to bear. And some might say, oh, that's a that's a cry of confession. No, it's not. Because look at what he says next. Behold, you have driven me this day from the first face of the ground. From your face, I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Here's his concern. In doing that, I have forfeited the protection that should be afforded my life. So because I killed somebody, I mean, I'm scared. Because I believe that Abel's line is going to take vengeance upon me. So whoever finds me will kill me. Well, then you have these laws that are already in place in the ancient world, I believe, that are inherent. That says, if you take a life, your life will be taken. So societally, as those laws develop, he would be known as a murderer and treated as such. He's motivated by fear and self-preservation. He's not motivated by repentance. He's not motivated by repentance. He says, whoever finds me will kill me. That's all that he's getting to. The punishment's too severe. No, the punishment's not severe enough. You should be struck dead immediately. You should be killed immediately because you killed your brother. A life for a life at best. So the Lord says to him, the Lord shows his mercy. The Lord nonetheless responds in his mercy. Toward Cain, but it is a provisional and temporal mercy. 
The Lord responds by bearing a mark for him, by providing a mark for him that would in his lifetime prevent violence and vengeance toward him from those seeking to kill him. And I believe as you really look into this text and study, even as it goes way beyond into Adam's descendants, you find out that that is because the Lord is reserving judgment of Cain for himself. Because we, I mean, if we literally turn the pages in Genesis, we are right up against the corruption of mankind in verse 6 in the flood. So the Lord's saying, okay, I'm going to give you a stay of execution. You're on death row. Let me give you a stay of execution. You will wander this earth. The little bit of life that is left in your lungs and in your blood, I'm going to restrain violence against you. But the day of ultimate judgment is coming upon you. And that day from the vantage point of our text is the flood. That's the day. And I don't believe that Cain's so-called line, I don't believe that his line is uh, exempt from that. But here's the here's the thing you have to notice. You do have to notice that there is a distinction between the line of Cain and the line of Abel. You have to understand that distinction. So this curse was not regional, it was upon the earth. Just like judgment in the flood was not regional, it was on the whole in the whole world. But we see him cry out. He bears this mark. The Lord prevents those who seek his life from killing him. He says, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. And look at this. Everything we've said so far lines up so perfectly about understanding who Cain was a uh, very much abject lesson about where he stood before the Lord. Look at this. 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Then he went out from the presence of the Lord. He didn't go into the presence of the Lord. He went out from the presence of the Lord. And that doesn't simply mean he left the conversation. Because you see generational lines succeeding what's written here. So this is no rescue. The Lord doesn't rescue him. But yet by temporal by a temporal provision, God seeks to restore Cain to life, a life absent of violence against him immediately, like he committed, but not free from his curse. So he's it's the violence won't be reciprocated against him. It won't be uh, against him, but he's not free from the curse. But listen, here's what's absent from the text. Any notions of Cain's repenting? For his brother's murder, an acceptable offering to God for what he did. What is present is a disagreement with the severity of righteous judgment against himself. He's saying, Lord, I, I don't I don't think that I deserve this punishment. I'm justified in what I did to a degree. It wasn't as bad as you're saying. I'll take some of it, but the part where I'm wandering and there's violence committed, fine. I'll wander, but I don't want violence. No, you deserve violence. A repentance man says, I deserve every ounce of this punishment. Lord, just allow me to be in your presence. Forgive me for the sin I committed against you. Forgive me for my brother's murder. But what we see, this passage doesn't end in some great discourse of hopefulness yet. In fact, we see in this, the hopefulness comes in recognizing 
to this point, the hopelessness in man in and of himself. But the fact that the mercy of God is still evident, you see it. It's still there because there's times where you and I are probably looking and saying, he should have wiped out Cain. He should have wiped out Adam and Eve. He should have wiped out everyone. And then you get to the time of Noah and he should he should have wiped out everybody there. He should have. But the Lord does recognize his own promise in Genesis 3.15. That's why it is so important. And we know that the line of Adam will continue, but not through Cain, not through Cain. Abel's gone. It's going to be through Noah. It's going to be through Noah. Because when Noah shows up, he's a righteous preacher who is warning the world before him, the old world of judgment and of God's impending judgment and his righteous wrath. And yet we only see restoration after they exit the ark. Let's pray.